Summertime is heating up at Global Voice Broadcasting. Hot music, hot talk, and hot topics. All day, every day, 24-7. You don't want to miss a minute on Global Voice Broadcasting. My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Burning when you pee. Frequent urination, bloating, peeing a little bit when you laugh, or peeing a little bit just whenever, or peeing a little bit during sex. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and today we are going to touch on these very common subjects that aren't very often talked about, and much more, starting with an expert you have heard from once before. Later in the show, Dr. Megan will chime in to discuss vaginal pain and a related phobia for a listener, and we'll even get into peeing versus squirting with a little throwback action. You'll see what I mean later. First, I am so pleased to welcome Missy Lavender back to the show. Missy is the founder and executive director of Women's Health Foundation. She's a national speaker on pelvic health and has been featured in numerous press outlets, print, radio, and TV, and was named one of Chicago's top 100 women of inspiration in today's Chicago Woman magazine. She joined us earlier this year to discuss issues beautifully explored in one of her books called Below Your Belt, A Girl's Guide to Pelvic Health, which I learned a lot from as an adult as well. I'm so happy to have you back. How are you, Missy? Hi, August. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, I would love to start with a really, really common issue, condition that so many of us experience, and that's UTIs or uh, bladder infections. And I remember the first time I experienced one and I searched around and Googled and I remember, and I don't know where this was, but I was reading something about, you know, the, the reasons that somebody might get one if if they're a man, it would be like biking and, you know, poor hygiene, whereas a gal was likely to get one after sex. And that seemed really unfair to me. I thought, mm-hmm. no. So could you share why are they so common for estrogen-based bodies? Well, it's a little bit about geography. Um, so we can just start there. So a man's, you know, urethra where the urine flows out is longer. Um, ours is shorter. And if you think about the openings down there, so let's all just establish that we have three August. So sometimes that's news to some of our younger audiences. Um, you know, the urethra and the vagina are, you know, from top to bottom, you know, urethra, vagina, and anus, they're all very close to each other. So during sex, you've got two things happening. You've got a foreign body, um, you know, it could be a penis or something else inserted um, potentially into the vagina that has its own bacteria associated with it. And it carries things into the vagina and are passing right by the urethra. Um, and then things from the vagina as far as secretions or things from the anus, you know, potentially things like E. coli if there's a little stool, um, can travel very close, in close proximity up to the urethra. And from there, it's just, you know, a little 
um, hop, skip, and a jump until you're in the bladder, and then things start to grow. So is it true that peeing before and or after protects a, a bit against the infection? That is the most common um, guidance that that we see and we hear health providers giving women once they're sexually active. Um, and it the peeing before is a little bit controversial unless a woman has had recurrent UTIs. But afterwards makes complete sense because it's basically flushing the pipes. So if you know if you know you're prone to it, maybe you go before, but definitely going after when your bladder could potentially also be a little bit more full. Um, it just, again, just takes everything out with it. And what about a partner's hygiene? So, for example, if your partner has a penis and does some of the bacteria then come from that, like if that person has better hygiene, might that make a difference? I, I think it's a logical um, deduction. And, and I think it's also important when women are potentially going um, from different openings. I mean, obviously, if you're having something involving anal sex, you want to make sure and hopefully you're protected if you have a birth control issue. But even so, you want to make sure things are very clean, washed, no matter you know where they're coming from before they get inserted into your vagina. Um, and so, yes, I think overall hygiene is always a great idea. Love to start our, our sex or lovemaking with a shower or a bath. That would be ideal. But I think it's something to pay attention to, sure. And I have to ask you about cranberry juice because that's another really common <laughs> thing that we hear. How helpful right. might it potentially be? The research on it is very non-definitive, so it you will hear it say it could be helpful, but then again, there it's also a bladder irritant. So, you know, I, I think some of it might be psychosomatic, that if it makes you feel good, you get a placebo effect, could be helpful. But, you know, it also could potentially irritate your bladder, giving you that more like got to go, got to go sensation. So, Interesting. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's really subjective. Okay, gotcha. And I know some people are just more prone to these conditions. So is it, is it mm-hmm. like size of urethra or just kind of a genetic predisposition? Both. So not necessarily just the size of, you know, all of our urethras are pretty short. Um, but, you know, how large your perineum is, and that varies by women. And it, everybody's anatomy is different. And I, I would just start by saying right here, August, you know, if you haven't taken a look you know, below your belt in a while, please do so. If you've never looked, I am inviting you to get a mirror and make sure you're in a safe place with the doors locked and explore your body. I mean, really understand, you know, where your clitoris is, where your urethra is, where the bladder, you know, is actually emptying from. And then you can see, oh my gosh, these things are so close. I love that advice. And now there are so many wonderful diagrams you can find, like medical drawings and whatnot, you know, online. And you can kind of use the mirror and yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, we have some wonderful ones in our Below Your book, your Belt book because it's obviously pitched to girls 10 to 14. But, you know, we sneakily wrote it so maybe the moms or caregivers are reading it. And, they're, you know, they're, they're illustrations, so they're not scary. It's not, this is, hopefully this isn't a scary place. Good heavens. Yeah, that's, that's right. I remember the graphics um, are really interesting and the, it's very inviting. So that's a great way, too, right. if you want to learn about your body with a younger person or just for yourself. Yeah, I like that a lot. Exactly. So urinary incontinence, which sounds like a really heavy, intimidating phrase for some reason. It just sounds so major, but it's so, Mm -hmm. so common. I read in one statistic, 25 to 45 percent of women experience it at least once a year. Mm -hmm. So could you explain a little bit just kind of what that actually means? 
Sure. So the first thing to know about um, urinary incontinence, or we like to flip it to something called bladder leakage. That's a little bit softer um, because it's, frankly, a little bit about marketing. I mean, nobody wants to have urinary incontinence. It sounds awful, right? So, but a lot of people have experienced, uh, oh, giggle leak or got to go, got to go or keys, keys in the door and oops, I have a little squirt or I have a little leakage. So we're always trying to get women into conversation about those kind of events. So talking to somebody about, oh, have you ever had a a little leakage from your bladder? Or the definition is leaking urine when you don't want to. Okay, could be a little, could be a lot. But the point, August, is that there are two different kinds. So there's urgency or urge urinary incontinence is when you have that sudden really strong urge to go and you don't quite make it to the bathroom. And you don't always have to leak. You could just have urgency, and that's called overactive bladder, or you could leak and then you have urge incontinence. That's a very different animal and a very different condition, and the pathways to treat it are very different from the other kind, which is called stress urinary incontinence. Not just because it's stressful <laughs> to have it ex- to experience it. Um, it has nothing to do with that, but it, it's because of the force of the um, basically the force force against the urethra to stay closed is just not adequate, and and sometimes that's because the muscles are not able to maintain closure, um, or tissues are thinning, and things are you know just generally not as tight as they were. Say when we age. Um, generally, it's, it has to do more with a, a neurological issue around the muscles and the muscles not being strong enough. So that's the laugh, cough, sneeze, and you leak. The other one's more the got to go, got to go, and sometimes you don't make it to the bathroom. Okay. I like giggle leak. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a nice mm-hmm. Girls one. like that too. They could identify with that one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so since it's so common, you know, and at the same time, because there tends to be some shame, unfortunately, around, you know, genital issues, how are some mm-hmm. do you find that people are proactive about you know when it's a problem versus if it's just like a normal occasional thing? No, so thank you for saying it exactly that way. So these are one of these are these conditions that we always say are common but not normal. It is not common to leak normal. So ladies that are listening, please understand that you are one of, as August just said, one in three, one in four, one in two, whatever number we're going to throw out on this show, we're underrating it because it's so intimidating, taboo, shameful, whatever. You know, you're talking about a bodily function. Oh, my gosh, I can't even control my bladder. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. It's mortifying. So what we find women do is they do what we're so good at. They cope. They go to that department in the Walgreens, they buy a pad they're used to buying or a liner, and they just wear one every day. And I'm good. The problem with that is, A, this is a real condition, and there are things that you can do about it. There are things that the right providers can help you do for yourself um, that are not all the way necessarily to taking a drug or all the way necessary to going to surgery. That could be an option, but there are lots of changes you can make with your body and your lifestyle first. And then the second part of that is if you're going to wear a pad for whatever reason, and sometimes women have to, um, there are pads specifically made for this. And I want to say that because they're made to absorb what you're leaking, and which is not blood. It's, it's a different chemical property. And to absorb the odors and to keep your skin, your very delicate skin below your belt, dry and healthy, you want things that wick it away. So those are the pads for bladder leakage. So okay, it is that's... not common. Very interesting. I mean, sorry, it is not normal. It okay. is common. 
Okay, got it. And you mentioned lifestyle changes. What are some of those for people they might be helpful? Sure. The most important thing to know is that you have these these muscles down there. So your pelvic floor muscles are the kind of buck stops here muscles. And along with your deep abdominals and your deep back muscles, they form this pyramid. You know, we call it the pelvic pyramid from Diane Lee's term up in Canada. I mean, these this basket or hammock of muscles weaves around these openings. There's like there's actually a, a figure eight around your genital openings that you know, stay closed ideally when you want them to and then relax and open when you need to urinate or need to have a bowel movement or, you know, have a baby. Um, so it's really important to know that you have these muscles and to be able to find them and exercise them and activate them when you want to. So if you don't know where your pelvic floor muscles are, there's a lot of things you can do to find them. We could have a whole show and we should about just this. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but there are pelvic floor trainers, there are pelvic floor physical therapists. If you're stumped and you really don't know what you're doing, um, you can go see your doctor, you can get a referral to somebody who will spend 30 to 50 minutes with you around your pelvic floor. Um, sometimes it's about tightening, sometimes it's about relaxing, and they always go together. Um, so you should have a, a, an exercise regime for your body below the belt. Then diet and exercise. So diet is important, especially for those got to go, got to go people. For in general, you want to be mindful of your water intake. Um, but if you're loading up like me in the morning, you want that big latte in the morning, um, just know that there are some things in there that could potentially irritate your bladder. Like we were talking about with cranberry juice, caffeine, if you're putting an artificial sweetener in there, that could potentially irritate your bladder. If you're drinking a Diet Coke, like my girlfriend, you know, across the room here, those are those contain carbonation. Carbonation can irritate your bladder. Spicy foods, chocolate, all those fantastic things that we women love, <laughs> they can all irritate your bladder. So looking hard at how you're using your body, how you're eating, um, even how often you're going to the bathroom, August. You know, if if you've got that got to go, got to go thing going. You may be going to the bathroom whenever you see one, you know, just in case. That can set you up on this cycle, this very aggravating cycle where your bladder is completely in control of your body and your brain. And it might, it might send you to the bathroom as frequently as every 45 minutes. That is also common but not normal. So you can retrain that. Your bladder is a muscle, just like any other muscle. It can be trained. That's a big thing that I learned from your book, and we chatted a little bit about last time was the just-in-case pee, which was so eye-opening to me because mm -hmm. I'm so used to, you know, I grew up in a big family where I was going on road trips and it would be like, get it out when you can. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I've changed that. Right, we though. don't do that with our little boys, right? We just, yeah. just stop at the side of the road and go. Exactly. Exactly. That's so interesting. And what you said about just observing and the awareness of your own intake and output. And I imagine, would it be helpful to keep like a, a log, a sort of a, you know, yes. like a food journal where you're also tracking your how often you're urinating if it's a concern? That's exactly right. And when you go see a specialist in advance of that appointment, they will always tell you to keep keep a three-day bladder diary. Just this developing of mindfulness, and, and I so love that term, and we use it all the time, um, is something, again, that we're really not used to. It's just like we go through our day and, oh, my gosh, I had this accident, or, oh, my gosh, I you know, had to run to the bathroom or whatever it was. Well, if you were to write down and realize, oh, my gosh, I'd had four cups of coffee by 10 a.m., and, yes, I was in the bathroom every 45 minutes, well, that does make sense. Um, and I found that the further the day went, I couldn't hold it. Well, that also might make sense. And so just 
getting aware of how you're using your body, what you're putting in and what's coming out can be a big aha moment. And then it'll also be extremely helpful when you go talk to your doctor, which we are always about women getting to the right care faster. That'll be a super helpful tool. Wonderful. That's such great advice. I know there have been some really interesting things happening in the area of what's called surgical mesh and these mesh Mm -hmm. kits, and you've been pretty vocal about them. Could you give us a little bit of background, kind of starting with what the mesh is used for? Sure. So mesh is one of those extremely volatile topics right now because a couple of years back, the FDA convened, convened these hearings around mesh for uterine prolapse. And it was back in the day, I mean, there were times, you know, I would say five, ten years ago, where mesh was being used in great volumes for prolapse repair, and not always by uh, doctors who were fully trained in doing this all the time, and the products hadn't potentially been as well-researched as they should. So the FDA eventually concluded that there was it was risky to use mesh and no reason to use it in, in certain prolapse procedures um, versus using human tissue. So alarms went off. The thing is, is that mesh is also right now the gold standard for certain kinds of surgical treatments. And I'm not a doctor. I just want to make sure this is very, very clear in my answer. I'm a patient. I'm actually a prolapse repair patient twice over. So I had I had mesh, uh, repla- mesh as part of my prolapse repair with my hysterectomy um, when, 14 years ago. It happened to be an older generation mesh. My body rejected it. We took it out, et cetera. I had to have it re, re put it back into my body last December when I had this surgery done again, but it was a different kind of mesh and, you know, knock on wood, everything's fine. But the point is, is that this generation of mesh is very well researched. It's the gold standard in the right hands of a well-trained healthcare professional. So it's smaller, it's a different material, um, and if a woman is concerned because she's heard her doctor say this, I think it's entirely appropriate that she ask a question, um, keep asking until she's satisfied, seek a second opinion, but know that um, it's a very different application today than it was 10 years ago or 20, year, 20 years ago when a lot of these cases that are in the news now you know, were happening. Mm, that is so interesting. It sounds complicated too. I can imagine if you're in that situation, there might be a lot of different information out there that can be, what's the first step if you were to be kind of want to be your own advocate? So I lost the part of your question. What's the first step? Yeah. So what's the first step if somebody is uh, dealing with these issues and they do want to be their own advocate and they kind of feel, I imagine it could feel overwhelming, just there's so much information and maybe some mixed messages and maybe they're not very familiar with, you know, the terminology. So I think, you know, so the Internet does exist to be a useful tool. And I think if you stick to the American Urogynecologic Society happens to be the, the high science body in this field of women's pelvic health. They have a wonderful um, patient site to their site. So if you go to AUGS.org, you can get some wonderful information in their patient portal. Um, but I always recommend women get to the highest level of care that they can based on their insurance. I mean, there are... There are doctors that this is all they do. They're urogynecologists, so that's urology meets gynecology, or they or they are female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. That's their discipline. That's their board certification right now. Um, I would want to make sure that the doctor that I was talking to and that was potentially operating on me 
was board certified in urogynecology, does this every day, all day for a living, and that I make sure that I've done everything I can before I have surgery and that I've got a plan for recovery. So in other words, if you're not in pelvic floor physical therapy before surgery, get there if your insurance will pay for it. And then make that part of your recovery protocol. Make sure you understand if they put you back in perfect alignment, you're not going to undo things by having bad lifting techniques, for example, mm. um, where you're bearing down when you're supposed to be lifting up. So I would, you know, just, just really research your healthcare options, I think is the fir- very first thing that you should do. And get a second opinion if you need to. Beautiful. want to. Beautiful. That's wonderful advice. And you're such a wealth of information on, on all these subjects, all the below-the-belt topics, which I just love. <laughs> Tell everybody where we can learn more about your work. Sure. You can come to our website is womenshealthfoundation.org, and our girls' site is belowyourbelt.org. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. She's such a fabulous resource. And whether you have kids or nieces and nephews or young people, younger people in your life, I hope you will check out those books if you want to learn more about below the belt, you know, your pelvis, your vagina, you know, peeing issues, all that stuff. Uh, the the book that I mentioned earlier is so, so fabulous. Again, the name of that is Below Your Belt, A Girl's Guide to Pelvic Health. Before we get to our fabulous Ask Dr. Megan question today, I received this related question just the other day from Brenda, who wrote this, women ejaculating, is it pee? That is such an awesome question, Brenda. Thank you for asking it. We actually explored this topic here on Girl Boner in 2014 when I interviewed porn star and educator Alexa Ames. Here's a little clip from that chat. I love that you uh, also want to educate as well as entertain and, and empower. Could you give us some uh, a few tips about, first of all, what is the difference between female ejaculation in a porn film and female <laughs> ejaculation in your bed? Um, there are a lot of differences. So you watch porn and you see this huge, big, like, big gush of squirt. And a lot of times people are like, oh, that's just got to be piss. And that's why women start to think and they get embarrassed to squirt because in their own sexual life, they're like, I'm peeing or he's going to think I'm peeing. Well, the thing is, is on camera, I mean, it is possible to project out a squirt like that. But a lot of the time on camera, it is urine or Girls will drink a lot of water, dilute their urine, push it out, and it looks like squirt because, you know, you're watching it on – you're paying yeah, for Yeah, you it. wouldn't it's, see it if there was like a dribble. It's a fantasy. The, <laughs> yeah. It's, it looks hot. But what a squirt is is um, – so an orgasm is a series of muscle contractions caused by our involuntary autonomic nervous system. Uh, inside you have your G-spot, also known as your Grafenberg spot, and your keen, or your skein gland. Yeah. And your skein gland is a really spongy <clears throat> kind of feeling. A lot of people, when you go inside the vagina, right by the, uh, the G-spot, it starts to harden as a woman gets aroused. That skein gland is right next to the urethra. And what it does is when it gets hardened, you're basically absor- it's basically absorbing all those ejaculatory fluids, the you know, the wetness, the lubrication that you're feeling when you're getting aroused. Um, it's just compiled of proteins and enzymes really similar to uh, the ejaculatory fluids of a male caused by the, the prostate. Yeah. And what it's doing, when you're pushing on that skin gland in your G-spot, 
in that rapid motion, you're redirecting the fluids into the skein gland and pushing it out through the urethra. So a normal squirt does have trace amounts of urine in it because it's coming out your urethra and sometimes out very close to the urethra. So there can be trace amounts of urine, but by no means is it urine. It's just a bunch of proteins, enzymes, and that lubrication that you're already feeling. The more you know, right? A recent study conducted in France published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine showed that yes, along with some prostate gland secretions, some urine is probably involved when someone with a vulva ejaculates. And you know what? There is not a single darn thing wrong with that or with you if that happens. God bless all bodily fluids and functions, I like to say. If you're able to let go and experience pleasure, you know, embrace that. But if you are concerned because it happens frequently or you just would rather it didn't happen for any reason, you can always, you know, empty your bladder before sex, which might help somewhat. Also, any urine that does flow out is super, super diluted. So it's not like you're peeing on anybody. Uh, So sometimes, you know, when you're having that gushing effect that, uh, you know, Alexa was mentioning is exaggerated in porn. You know, sometimes we think it's actually this, you know, flood of of urine, but actually it is mostly water. So it's not going to be a really pungent fluid, for example. Now for a question for Dr. Megan. This fabulous question comes from Liz, who wrote this. I have never been able to put anything in my vagina when I masturbate. Even using my fingers in my vagina feels a little painful. I can have sex just fine, so there is nothing physically wrong with me. Do you have any advice how to really relax and get over the fear of putting my fingers or anything, even tampons, into my vagina? Thank you so much for asking, Liz, and I'm really, really sorry you've experienced this kind of pain. I do know that it's relatively common, so you're definitely not alone, and there is plenty of hope to be had. Here is what Dr. Megan had to say for you. Liz, thanks so much for the question. You know, so one of the things that I'm first curious about is um, when did you even recognize or notice having this fear of putting your fingers, or as you said, even anything, including tampons into your vagina? Did you always sort of have an intuitive sort of felt sense? Um, And yet you're saying that you can also have sex, uh, so there's nothing physically wrong. So I'm actually curious, like the idea of your boyfriend inserting fingers or his penis, has that created any tension, fear, or anxiety? Um, Or is it just specific to the thought of your putting something inside of your body? And I'm curious, as I say that, you know, is it specific to your vagina or like even putting a Q-tip in your ear? Does that create any tension? Um, Because this really sounds a little bit like a simple phobia. And the treatment really is what we call systematic desensitization. And by that, I mean, we want to break it into a hierarchy. You know, even thinking about putting your fingers in your vagina or a tampon, you know, zero to 10, sorry, zero to 10, we call that... um, uh, a number of suds, a subjective unit of distress. So uh, a zero being little or no distress, 10 being, you know, the worst case, you know, worst thing you can imagine. So if just thinking about putting something uh, in your vagina, where, you know, what, what level of tension or anxiety does that evoke? And then think about if I just placed my finger at the entrance to my vagina without any pressure, you know, where is my suds level there? And then if I would just now 
being fully in control of my experience, um, you know, just push like the lightest pressure. What happens to your SUS rating? And the idea is we create a hierarchy from something that creates little or no distress up to, up into the thing that creates the most distress, which would be literally putting your fingers in your vagina or a tampon. And the goal here is you start small. And say, so for the just visualization piece, the thought of it evokes some level of tension or anxiety. Then we need to pair a relaxation response. So as you're holding that image and feeling that tension, you would focus on relaxation exercises. And that could be um, deep breathing. It might be um, visualization, you know, imagining, picturing, um, seeing yourself doing this effortlessly, effortlessly and sort of what we call the mental rehearsal, um, seeing it happen without any pain or discomfort. And again, noticing as you're feeling tension or anxiety, where are you feeling in your body? Is it in your feet and in your legs? Is it in your buttocks? Is it really just at sort of the entrance to your vagina where you might be, it sounds like on your own, you might be uh, tensing your pelvic floor muscles, but it sounds like since you're having sex fine, I'm assuming that's not painful and you're able to relax. So that part's really interesting and I have you really think about how, why with your boyfriend, it's easy to relax, but on your own, you hold this tension. Um, and whether or not there's any historical root to it, you know, whether there was, um, you know, do you remember when you were younger ever sort of falling or, um, you know, anything sort of jabbing, you know, by the way that you fell, you might have ran into something and that came close to your vagina. I, I wonder if there's any sort of root fear or early experience that might just sort of be a trapped muscle memory that, you know, the process here is about extinguishing. So um, we can work with memory, we can work with imagery, and we can work with ultimately, as I said, pairing relaxation with, you know, graduated experiences that, you know, starting low, little level anxiety until that no longer causes any, that your sub units go down and you don't feel any anxiety and then working your way up through the hierarchy. Um, there's a lot on the internet. If you look up systematic desensitization and any uh, cognitive behavioral therapist would be happy to help you create your own hierarchy. If you're finding um, it challenging or not knowing for you specifically, which relaxation techniques um, are the best to pair to ultimately extinguish this response in your body because you know physically what's possible and now we just have to get your mind and your brain on board. I'd love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I hope that was helpful for you, Liz. I loved what Megan said about looking back at your history and really investigating where certain fears might come from and how they might be linked to muscle memory. I think that's something that we can all learn from. You know, if we have any kind of fear, whether it's um, involving our sexuality or certain body parts or a certain activity, and then taking those baby steps and then also working with a professional if needed and, and, and all of that. Wonderful, wonderful advice. As a reminder to all of you, Dr. Megan is offering Girl Boner listening, listeners her fabulous Rekindle Desire program, which includes audio and workbook components for half off, which is basically a $40 discount for another week. So to get the discount and download the program, or even if you just want to learn more about it, go to greatlifegreatsex.com forward slash girl boner. Great life, great sex. 
com forward slash girlboner. Speaking of specials, there's a very special event happening over at the Pleasure Chest. The sex toy and educational superstore is celebrating their 45-year anniversary. How awesome is that with a super, super sweet deal? So for every $45 you spend online or in the store, which is in LA, Chicago, and New York, you'll receive $5 back, that's huge, as well as free shipping on orders of $75 or more. To start shopping, visit thepleasurechest.com or click their ad on my website. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, leave a simple review if you're inclined while you're there, and sign up for occasional email updates on my website, augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. At least once a week, I have something new up on my blog, and very often I share extras and related content that you don't get here on this show, so I hope you'll check it out. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. <laughs>